reading. It'd be re really good if you can have uh, Acts, uh, that part of Acts open in, in front of you. That'll be really helpful, I think. Um, now, you notice too that in your bulletin there's an outline, and I've given you a bit of a who's who. So what we're looking at, the chapters we're looking at today is actually from 23 verse 25 all the way through to 26 verse 32. So that's, that's quite a big chunk and we're doing a bit of a flyover and trying to pull out some important things. So a bit like we did last week as well. However, this time there's some characters who pop up that you may not recognise and might be a bit confusing. For example, Claudius Lysias. Now he was that commander last week. Remember the commander who sort of rescued Paul, sort of kind of didn't? In a, in a way, uh, he rescued Paul and, and, and um, three times, or four times, actually. And then there's Go Governor Felix. He's uh, the, the procurator or governor of Judea, now married to uh, Drusilla, who was actually Jewish. But Governor Felix, well, a procurator means governor, right? So, um, sorry, uh, that's the same, same thing. Uh, the most famous governor of Judea was probably Pontius Pilate. We know him because he was the governor at the time of Jesus' uh, death. Tertullius pops up. He's, he's a lawyer um, who's, who uh, speaks on, with uh, Paul's tribe before Felix. There's Portius Festus. Uh, he's the governor of Judea after Felix. And then King Agrippa, he was the Jewish king. This is the one we, Madeline read about just now. He was the Jewish king in Judea that who, gave, um, who Rome gave some power to and, uh, but was given authority to appoint the high priest. So King Agrippa was a Jewish king in Judea, had a bit of power, but only the power that Rome gave him. Okay, so you might want to come back to that now and then, but certainly go through the um, outline, you'll see what we're up to. Actually, there's a number added there. Uh, point three is point two, and point four is point three. You, you'll get that, it's okay. All right, let's, um, let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at this... Um, uh, it's a great part of Scripture. It's really good fun. Father, we thank you for your, your, um, uh, your words to us today. We pray that you'd, you'd uh, help us to see through the detail and, and all the detail to see these main, keep the main thing the main thing of what, what you want us to remember uh, of your sovereignty, of your, of your mission, of our response to that uh, and our response to you. So uh, we pray that you'd help us today. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a, there's a law in most countries that states that you can't be tried twice for the same offence. Now, know that law. The law is called double jeopardy. Uh, that's the sort of nickname for it. It's probably got some complicated other name that lawyers make up to make life difficult. But um, the, uh, <laughs> it's where the prosecution or punishment of a person... Uh, well, the prosecution or punishment of a person twice for the same offence, double jeopardy. There's a 90s movie too. Remember 90s movie? Yes. Ashley Judd, she got beefed up for it. Yeah, that's right. And Tommy Lee Jones. Anyway, fairly forgettable, but go and watch it if you want to. Um, now, these, um, these laws are designed to ensure that those found innocent of a crime would not continue to be hounded by the police and charged again for the same offence. So a bit of an accountability thing too, uh, so that police don't keep hounding and so on and charging them again and again. You see, we, we hate injustice, don't we? We don't like it. Uh, our kids pick it up from a very early age when they say, it's not fair, my little brother got a bigger piece of the banana cake than, than I did, uh, that's just not right, it's not fair, it's injustice, we don't like that. Um, now in these chapters, 
in Acts 23, verse 25, through to 26, verse 32, it's actually not really a case of double jeopardy. It's a case of triple jeopardy. Paul, one man, on trial for the same crime three times. But Paul never seems to waver under the load of such unjust, persistent examination. He keeps testifying the gospel. He keeps, and God keeps sustaining him as he testifies under great difficulty. There are three trials in these chapters, and you can sort of see them as you look, flick through the pages using the NIV headings. They're pretty good. There's Paul before Felix uh, in chapter 24. There's uh, Paul before Festus in chapter 25. And then there's Paul before Agrippa and Festus. So three trials. And as I said, I've given you a bit of a who's who. You might want to come back to that if you need to. What's extraordinary in, these, in this section is that it's fr- is this, this section itself is framed by declarations of Paul's innocence. He, yet he continues to be on trial and imprisoned. Now, I just want to, before I talk about that for a moment, I just want to show you where, where we're at here. So here's our map. Um, where, where this whole scene takes part here, takes place here in Caesarea. So there's Jerusalem, just to the south, and there's Caesarea. And after that, he's going to Rome, up there. Okay. So uh, this is um, there's Caesarea. That's where most of the action takes place. He's headed to Rome there. Okay. So what's extraordinary in this section is that it's framed by declarations of Paul's innocence yet he continues to be on trial and in prison. So in 23 verse 29, right at the start of our section, Claudius Lysias, now he's that, that commander, that, that Roman commander, who, the soldier who rescued Paul four times, he actually said there was no charge against him that deserved death and imprisonment. And then right at the end, you might remember this, what Madeline uh, read a moment ago in 26.32, King Agrippa said this, he said, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And actually, we can go to 25 verse 25, Festus, he adds that in his request to Agrippa, I found he had done nothing deserving of death. So it's framed by uh, these, these uh, declarations of Paul's innocence. Three trials, three declarations of innocence. Here's our question this morning then. Why, why does Luke give us all this detail? Why does he do that? Uh, there's a lot of detail, isn't there? A lot, of, lot, a lot in this. Why does he give us all this detail? The answer to this question tells us much about Paul as he testifies, but also much about what we can expect when we too testify about the Lord Jesus. So, why record three trials? Uh, What do we learn? First answer that question, here it is. It's to vindicate God's word. It's a common theme throughout the Bible. God keeps his promises. God is faithful, he keeps his promises. Of course, that sort of talk is not really common these days, is it? Uh, Keeping promises. It often comes up, it's it's usually brought up when so-and-so does not keep promises. So whether it's a politician or something like that, so-and-so has not kept their promise to keep this side of whatever it might be. One of the first things I talk about when I lead a couple through marriage preparation is keeping promises. Among other things, uh, marriage is about making and then keeping promises. That's what you do on your wedding day. Uh, It's why it's important to say on your wedding day, I will, not I do. I promise to, I will, I will keep these promises. I'm promising for the future. 
I'm not just promising for today because it's really easy today to say I do now. It's much harder to say I will for the future, forever. It's easy to say I do when it's nice and romantic and we're having a lot of fun together, which weddings are. Now the bride and the groom say I will for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health and so on. Uh, God often speaks about the relationship he has with his people as a marriage. Uh, right at the end of the Bible in Revelation, God's people are described as his bride, beautifully dressed in, in white, uh, symbolising clean, forgiven. And they're washed clean by the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus. Another example is in um, Hosea, where God, uh, as the faithful husband in love for his bride, who is Israel, keeps his promises. In other words, God says, I will, not I do in Hosea. Well, just like God promised Paul that he'd be safe in Corinth, that was way back in Acts 18, in the same way God promises Paul in regards to his visit uh, to Rome. So in Acts 23 verse 11, this is a verse we looked at last week, take courage, Jesus said to Paul, as I have testified uh, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Luke shows us that despite the charges and the trials, God will bring Paul to Rome, keeping his promise, vindicating his word, fulfilling his word. God keeps his promises. So, first reason why Luke records all this detail. Second reason why Luke records all this detail. It's to show Paul giving solemn earnest, sincere witness uh, to Jesus. These trials give Paul many opportunities to preach, to testify, to defend the gospel in a number of contexts. Now, the most significant examples are his words to the Gentile rulers, although we're going to pick up this, this conversation, this defence of the gospel, this preaching of the gospel, when uh, uh, Paul is talking to King Agrippa, the Jewish king in Judea, but also, uh, also Festus, that um, governor. So if you've got a Bible there, go to Acts 26, verse 24. I think this is a great scene, it, especially towards the end. I love it. Anyway, verse 24. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defence and said, you are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Probably not the first time Paul's heard that uh, directed at him. Your great learning is driving you insane. Verse 25. I'm not insane. Most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things. So now he's looking toward the, the, the Jewish king, who's Agrippa. The king, sitting over there, he, he's familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice. Remember, he's a Jewish king. He knows the Old Testament, right? Because he was not done on the corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? It's a great line, isn't it? And, and Paul's thinking, oh yeah, I'll give it a crack, why not? <laughs> um, and Paul replied, well, short or long, I pray, that God, I pray to, you, to God that not only you, but all who are listening, I love it, everyone who's here in the room, everyone will listen to me today and become what I am, become a follower of Jesus, except for these chains. It's a great scene. It's one of five occasions in this, uh, these chapters where Paul really successfully defends himself 
we see, well, actually, we, we could go back to chapter 22. Paul defends himself before the crowd in Jerusalem, that was last week, before the Sanhedrin, before, the, before Governor Felix in chapter 24, before Governor Festus in 25, and here before King Agrippa in chapter 26, and Festus too. See, as Paul testifies or bears witness on these occasions, it's not as if he's trying to prove his innocence, although he does that, doesn't he? His purpose is to persuade his audience of the truth of, of his experience and to encourage them to investigate the resurrection. That's his purpose. He wants them to investigate the resurrection, to see the truth, to investigate Jesus and perhaps persuade them to be a Christian. Okay, third reason why Paul records three trials, uh, these, these details, and uh, it's on your outline there as you're following along, to show that the resurrection empowers perseverance in testimony. The resurrection keeps him going. Now, that's our question. We wonder, as we go through this, how does he keep doing this? Now, we're not talking about a few days or a few months even. We're talking about a much longer time, a couple of years. How does Paul keep going, given all the trials, given all the beatings, uh, given all the setbacks he faces? See, you, um, you might have heard, if you're a follower of, of um, well, the news, sport, this time of year, it's, the, it's, the, it's the, uh, the business end, they call it, of the winter sporting season. Maybe you've had a son or daughter who made, a, made it to one of the finals or something like that. Players, if they've made the finals... Well, of course, they have the end in sight, don't they? They've got the end in sight. They have the trophy. They run past it on the way out. They see it there. They can almost have it in their grasp. But they're tired. Right? They're probably carrying a few injuries. They're bruised and they're battered. But the prize keeps them going. They can see it. Getting to the end. Finishing the race, so to speak. Lifting the trophy high. They can... They can taste it, taste it almost. I want you to listen, uh, I'll read Paul's words uh, to the church at Ephesus. As he sits in Rome, so this is written just a little bit later after the period that we're looking at here. He's sitting in Rome under house arrest, awaiting trial, awaiting the end. How has he kept going? How does Paul keep going amongst all the trials and setbacks? Well, this is what he says. It's quite a famous piece of the Bible. Um, I, I wish, I, I'm, I'm praying that I'm going to say something similar on my last day before, if I get the chance, uh, before Jesus um, takes me home. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me that, on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have longed for his appearing. How does he keep going? Through such trials and setbacks and persecution? Well, he sees the prize at the end. He sees the crown of righteousness. He sees, he, he, it's the resurrection. That's what he's seeing. That's what he's focusing on, being forever with Jesus. The key is the resurrection of Christ. The confident expectation. So that's what the Christian hope is. The Christian hope is a confident expectation that one day we'll be like Jesus and that we'll be with him forever, resurrected to new life with him. Now, Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians that the, the resurrection of Christ keeps our preaching, our speaking of the gospel, from being useless. Because without the resurrection, our preaching 
is useless. Our faith is futile. Without the resurrection, Paul says, well, we're pitied. Because of the resurrection, we know that there is more to life than just living and dying. That there is life beyond this earthly existence. And so whatever we do for the Lord is not in vain. Have a look at 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58. Paul says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour is not your labour in the Lord is not in vain. That therefore is important there. It's on the back of talking about the resurrection. It's on the back of talking about that our, our preaching is not useless or our faith is not futile and, our, and being a believer is not to be pitied because of the resurrection. Therefore, our work for the Lord is not in vain. You see that? Our labour in the Lord is not in vain. So Paul urges his readers to stand firm and give themselves fully to Christ's work. That's what God's saying to us today. Because Christ's resurrection means that all of life now, well, is a preparation for the life to come. So therefore, the ministry of sharing the gospel, when you have those gospel conversations with your neighbour, with your friend, your workmate, when you share the gospel with them, when you invite them to church, when you love them and care for them in, 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 in words from, from the Bible, making people aware of the life that has come, those words, because of the resurrection, are never empty. They're never futile. They're never useless. All right, fourth reason. Fourth reason why Luke includes all the details of these trials. We won't spend long on this one. To explain the content of the charges against Paul. So, um, some commentators argue that Theophilus, remember Theophilus was the person that Luke is writing his gospel, that's Luke the gospel and Acts, the history of the early church. Um, Luke is writing those two books, they really go together, to this guy called Theophilus. Some commentators say that Theophilus um, was a, a Roman official. Uh, so the Acts 1 verse 1 highlights that Theophilus being the, the um, intended recipient of the letter. They see this section as further evidence that Acts is a bit like a legal brief, right, uh, in support of Paul's case as he com comes to Rome. It provides a full account of what happened and would help the authorities make up their mind about what to do with him. So that's why we're reading all the charges against Paul. Uh, we read, read it a few times. And it's why we're reading the, about the witnesses. It's why we're reading uh, about Paul's defence in, in court and so on. Okay. That's the fourth reason. The, the, the last reason why all this detail, Luke recording all this detail, is to show that we've been here before, to show that God is still in control. This section gives us that deja vu feeling. I went out with some um, friends on Friday night and uh, uh, I was talking to my mate and um, we were just ordering some drinks and I had the most, I mean, the, the most clear deja vu. It was so bizarre. I said to my friend, I'm having a deja vu like, like you wouldn't believe. I, I've, we've been here before. And of course we hadn't. But man, it was so strong. And, I, and, I was, was like, and you were there and we're there. Oh, maybe you're having a deja vu now about, about a deja vu. This is getting weird. Um, <laughs> so that we've got this, this feeling that we've been here before, right? How is it that a man so often declared innocent is kept in prison and transferred under Roman guard as a Roman prisoner? Gee, it starts to sound familiar, doesn't it? Well, how about the scene with Felix, the end of chapter 24? 
So Paul was kept in prison because Felix, the Roman governor, thought a bribe was possible and it may be that he also had a personal interest in the Christian faith. Politically, Felix wanted to please the Jews and knew that Paul's imprisonment would keep the Jews' crowd on side, the Jewish crowd on side. Starting to sound a little bit like we've been here before, doesn't it? See, in the same way, Paul's appeal to Caesar is brought about by the possibility that Festus, wanting to keep the Jews on side, would send Paul to Jerusalem to stand for trial. It's, it sounds a little bit familiar, like we've been here before. Well, of course, we have. In Luke 23, the Roman governor, Pilate, in the face of charges uh, by the Jews that Jesus claims to be a king who opposes Caesar, says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Now, Jesus doesn't give an answer when he's accused before Herod. That's in Luke 23, verse 9. But then he stands before Pilate again, who says, Luke 23, 14 and 15, I think I've got it up there, there it is. Um, I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he has sent him back to us. In other words, the pronouncements of innocence, uh, three, actually, three pronouncements of innocence, but Jesus is treated as if guilty. Just the same story. A few years later with Paul. Uh, and then in the end, Pilate, uh, I, think it, I think it's up there. Uh, I, can't, I can't see it. Pilate surrendered Jesus to their will, the, Jew, the Jews' will, and he's taken away and crucified. Of course, the truth is, God is in control and he's sovereign over all these things. He's sovereign over these events. And that's, what, that's why Luke includes them here in such detail. It's a pointer back to Jesus' experience. See, in one, God brings human redemption through the, the death of, of his son. You might remember back in Acts chapter 4, I do have that up there. Uh, Peter and John are praying after they're released from the Sanhedrin. And verse 28, uh, they pray, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. See, God is in control. They've seen it before. Uh, they'll, they'll see it again, no doubt. Now, in the other example, God ensures that the message of redemption in the gospel is brought to Rome through Paul, despite the best efforts of his opponents. So there's our, there as our, our five reasons why Luke includes all this detail. What do we learn? What do we walk away with here? Well, there's probably a few things, I suppose. Uh, let me highlight a few things. The first is the example of Paul. Let's not miss that. See, Paul shows us courage, persistence, and a clear focus on the resurrection of Jesus, trusting in God to fulfill his purposes, to vindicate his word, that he keeps his promises. Yes, Paul is a model for us to follow. Paul actually says to the church of Corinthians, church of, of Corinth in, um, in 1 Corinthians, he says, um, follow me as I follow Christ. Following Paul is a good thing for us to do, following his example. Also, this sh shows us that when we testify, when we speak of Jesus and his resurrection, we cannot expect to receive a warm reception. You might be accused of being insane, as Paul was. <laughs> Crazy. You cannot expect a warm reception when you speak of Jesus publicly. And that solidarity with Jesus does not lead to prosperity in a worldly sense. It doesn't, it won't. There's no promises like that. 
We should remember from Jesus' words from John 15 uh, that was read to us earlier. No servant is greater than his master. I'll put these up as well. Uh, no, I've just got that. <laughs> no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So as for Jesus, as for Paul, and so for us. The challenge to Christians today is that we are to be testifiers. It's very clear in the Bible. We are to testify, speak of God's, God's good gospel, speak of the Lord Jesus. And our testimony, though, is never unaccompanied. Remember again from John 15, what we have as believers, as Jesus promises, we have his spirit with us, we have the spirit of truth. It's, we're never unaccompanied as we preach the gospel, as we testify to the Lord Jesus. Opposition will be persistent and must be met with persistent faithfulness. Our job is not to get bitter about injustice. Don't go down there. Expect it, it's going to happen. Don't get bitter about that, but simply just get on with ministry. Get on with preaching the gospel. Get on with sharing with your friends. Get on with gospel conversations. Get on with love. Uh, get on with prayer. Get on with it. That's our job. And that was Paul's job too. How about I pray? Um, and then we'll have some time for, for questions and comments. Uh, I think we're actually going to go and get the kids in at this point too. So I believe there was someone to do that job. I'll, actually, honey, I might get you to run out. I think that'll be better. Yeah. Um, sorry. I, Jack, um, Beck might check her messages in about an hour. Who knows? Um, all right. I'm going to pray and then we'll see if there's any questions or comments in a later. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for uh, your word to us today. And we do thank you for the example of Paul. And we pray, Lord, that you would um, instill that in our, our hearts and minds and words and actions. But, Lord, we also pray that, um, uh, that we would trust in your sovereign care. We trust in the goodness of your gospel, the great news that Jesus died for us and is alive today. And the resurrection, that, that, that confident expectation we have as we live for you, Lord Jesus. Uh, and, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.